Welcome to Kilts and Culture with USA Kilts. We're here to talk about all things Highland dress, the cultures and the heritage that created it, and how to enjoy the kilt in the 21st century. From tartan and trues to haggis and history, we cover it all. So sit back, grab your beverage of choice, and enjoy the show. Howdy, boys and girls. Welcome to Kilts and Culture. I am Rocky. This is my good friend, Eric. Yo. Today, special treat. Aside from the Scala Cap, special treat. We are trying something. I saw it in the store, and I was like, oh my god, I have to try this. Um, this is Glenfiddich IPA, the IPA experiment. So it's you know, effectively aged in IPA casks. So I love IPAs. I love scotch, like Glenfiddich, like Glenfiddich, sorry. Um, so I figured we should try this. Um, Mac, do you have any tasting notes on it or am I my blind self trying to read the back of the bottle? You blind self is going okay, to read the bottle. Okay, my blind self. All right. <laughs> uh, the first single malt finished in an IPA craft beer cask. Zesty citrus notes with a hint of fresh hops. Ex uh, experiment over ice. Oh, ah, shoot, it says experiment over ice. The twist of blood orange. Nah. Nah. It's not how we drink. <laughs> that's that's too fancy for us. Yeah, pretty much. Alright. I have I have pre-watered mine a little bit. Um mm, mm. Yeah, I should water mine. I I will say I, I cheated. I cheated, <laughs> I smelled it before oh. before we started. Um, I didn't taste it yet. I just, I, I cheated and I smelled it. Um, it had a very um, strong alcoholy smell to it. I put the water in about five minutes ago. I, this is when I poured it about a half hour ago. About five minutes ago, I poured some water in and it definitely cut down on the, on that harsh scent. Mm -hmm. It was it was definitely pungent. I, I My glass was unwatered and when I walked into the studio here, I could smell it. It's like, oof, yeah, that's off-gassing like crazy. Yeah. <laughs> okay, on, on the nose, Mac, what are you getting? I'd probably be getting more if I had Osage or, or, uh, or uh, Blood Orange and uh, Ice in it, but... You know what you'd be getting if you had Blood Orange in it? Blood Orange. <laughs> and we could have Jeeves bring you some up, Mac. Now, the, the citrus of a Blood Orange <laughs> would go well with... Um, like the citrus kind of notes in most IPAs, like the grapefruity, citrusy kind of notes. So I get yeah. it. That's why they suggested it, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I'm not pulling anything in particular out, Mac. Are I'm you? not getting a lot. No, it's like the the hairspray smell. Yeah, I'm getting I'm getting just alcohol fume and a little bit, you know, a little bit of iodininess, you know. Yeah, maybe maybe a tiny bit, a tiny bit of citrus, and I, I might was gonna be... say a tiny bit floral, but yeah, yeah, because the hops have like a florally kind of smell to them. So, I, it's it's definitely like top back of the mouth is where I'm like feeling it in the nose. All right, well, here we go. Taste it. On taking it in, it's a little bit harsh. Um, it's it, it get the uh, 
the a little bit of the bitterness kind of thing um, but it's I'm noticing that the harsh and the like the hoppy bitterness again top back of the mouth it's I I, I think it's sweet this came off came off as really sweet for me I mean, I'm get I get what you're saying too there is some a harshness but uh... where where are the sweet sensors in your mouth Like, my mouth? I don't know. It, like, it, your tongue has different zones for sweet, yeah, I don't salty. Know. I am uh, tasting it in the middle of my mouth, if that makes any yeah. sense, the sweetness. I'm getting it on the sides of my tongue. Yeah, yeah. S sweet is in the front. Salty and sour on the sides, and bitters in the back. Yeah. Okay. Mac, what are you what are you what are you tasting? How's the mouth feel? It's definitely you got that burn in the in the back. But I do agree with Eric. You do have a little bit of a sweet to it. I expected a little bit more hop to it, but I'm not getting much any of that. Yeah. I I, I wanted it to be um hoppier. I'm 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 looking for it. I'm, I'm, I'm like in the weeds, like, you know, probing <laughs> around. I, maybe a little. If anyone out there in Facebook, YouTube land, Twitch land um, has had this, let us know what you think. Um, it's an experiment. It's one of their, it's not like their standard 12 year, you know, 18 year, that kind of thing. Um, so I don't know. We'll, we'll, we'll judge it based on the fact that it's an experiment. We'll get all scientific. Um, I got my lab coat. I'm getting a little bit of the citrusy kind of tiny bit of it. Not a ton. It's, I mean, it's, um, more, it's a little more floral than citrus. Um, it's woody. It's kind of woody. A little touch of a kind of molasses. Honestly, you know what it's reminding me of right now is... Uh, uh, some golden rums that I, that I drink. It's reminding me of like a Cruzon uh, gold rum. Okay. Okay. Which is not something I would have expected from a scotch. Yeah. But... Yeah. Yeah, it's very like oaky. Um, yeah. yeah I'm, yes. I'm getting a little bit of uh, my my heartburn meters going off a little bit from the anytime I drink an oaky one. Um, yeah, I don't know. It's not bad. Did it live up to the name? Is it a successful experiment or is it a failed experiment? I'm going to say fail. It, I'm okay with it, but it does not make me think of an IPA. Very good point. I think if someone if someone lined up three scotches on the table and said, okay, find the one that is the IPA that was finished in IPA barrels. Not a shot in hell that I could figure that out. Hmm. It, would, yeah. it would be a pure guess. Yeah. And like I said, I oddly enough, from, it, it reminds me of a rum, which is weird. Yeah. But. Mm -hmm. I'm, I'm getting a little bit, little bit more of the sweet now when I'm like just letting it sit in my mouth or, you know, just the aftertaste. Um, but yeah, 
Mac, pass or fail the experiment? I, I agree with Eric. I think this is a, a failure. It's I just... agree. Fail. Experiment, experiment portion failed. Now, hmm. ticking out our, our lofty expectations of IPA-ness. Um, <laughs> I don't know if I should say that again. <laughs> IPA-ness. Um, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to stop before I get in trouble. This is live. Um, the uh, Mac, score it 1 to 10. What do you give it as a regular scotch? Where does it fall? Uh, as a regular scotch, I'm going to go... I think a 4.35. 4.35, just over four and a third. Like where you're going. Mm -hmm. Mr. Eric. <laughs> Doing the archer thing there. Um I'll go I'll go four point six. It's not bad, and I have a feeling I'm going to like it better after, after this is sat on my table here for a few minutes and it's opened up a little bit more. But experiment fail, 4.6 overall. Okay. I would say <clears throat> experiment fail, I'm going to give it I think a 6.1. Oh, I like it. Okay. It's I wouldn't, okay. wouldn't go out of my, my way to buy it. It's a little bit better than average. It's not spectacular. It's fine. It's fine. Um, so six one, boom. That's it. I think I'm going to agree with Eric though. I'm going to pour a little bit more, and I'm going to see how it tastes after it rests for a little bit longer later in the show. Yeah, yeah. It feels like it needs some some time. I'm going to pour a lot apparently. <laughs> I'm going to pour a lot of scotch. Yeah. I'll be fine. Just answer the questions. All right. Very good. That's our assessment. Now, Mr. Eric. Yes, sir. Will, or boys and girls out there in uh, YouTube, Twitch, uh, Facebook land, load your questions in. Let us know what you want to know. What burning questions do you have about life, about the meaning, what the origins of the universe, anything? Let us know. We probably won't know the answers, but we at least know a little bit more about kilts. So anyway, load your questions in the comments section. Um, Mr. Eric, what is our first question of the day? Uh, I'm going to kick us off with a, a fun one, which came up from, uh, the comments when we solicited questions this week. And thank you everybody who, uh, did that. Um, this is, this is, this should be a lot of fun. So everybody, you know, pay attention to your screens, um, because we have visual aids. Uh, Daniel McCuller pointed out that in the recent film, Coming to America, to coming to America, uh, Wesley Snipes wears a beautiful kilt made from an African design fabric. Any idea how in the world this was made? Because it doesn't appear as though it would have been woven, and I would assume that this is in no way considered a tartan. The other and other people commented that they thought the design was awesome, and they're curious about the whole outfit as a whole. And uh, one guy said he has black friends who know they would who love kilts, and they would probably kill for this because it's really super cool. So they're wanting us to analyze and dissect Wesley Snipes' kilt from Coming to America. I can give the background. Yeah, please do. So basically, all the costuming in the movie is fantastic. This It was all done by uh, Ruth E. Carter, who you may know, she uh, she did all the costuming for Black Panther. 
and she won an Academy Award for it. So it's it's super cool. The movie is fantastic eye candy. The outfit is basically being worn by Wesley Snipes as General Easy, who is the ruler of uh, the neighboring country Nexdoria. Haha. Ha. And he's kind of the heavy in the film until the end. And this outfit appears in the final scenes of the movie, which are the wedding party uh, after everybody's made up and things are good and it's a happy ending. Um, so all through the film, he's got these crazy over-the-top military uniforms because he's, you know, he's kind of a caricature of the classic uh, tin pot dictator kind of guys who just love to have military dress. So um, she went overboard and made his costumes all like crazy go nuts, you know, flashy military uniforms. But for the party, he opts to wear Highland dress, and this is what they rend rendered it in. Uh, the cloth is uh, is kente cloth. It's a traditional African fabric. It's most associated with the uh, the Asante or Ashanti tribe, uh, who are mostly around the area of Ghana, and is a traditional art form there. Uh, it was originally done in cotton and indigo uh, dyes, and then when Portuguese traders started showing up in like the 17th century, um, they started bringing in silks to try and trade with the, the native people, and guys would buy this and then pick the fabric apart to get the silk thread. And then they started incorporating a lot more color into their designs once they had that. Um, and then they developed even further this art form. It's, it's fascinating. I'll get into it in a little bit more uh, in, a, in a minute here. Basically, it actually has some interesting parallels to Tartan as a cultural um, thing. You know, as, as a cultural object. But uh, yes, so that's, that's basically what the cloth is. Um, and the kilt, as far as I could tell, is actually constructed as a traditional kilt. Yeah, you actually see the pleats in it. You can actually see the uh, the straps and buckles on it. So, and it, it does appear, you know, like a real kilt. I mean, it's, it's non-traditional fabric, um, but construction-wise, it looks like a, you know, traditional kilt. The, uh, Eric, any other thoughts on that? Well, you would you would note earlier that uh, when we looked at the images, that you could tell that this was a woven version of the cloth um, because you could see the underside, like in the shot when he's spinning or whatever. You can see the inside, which basically means it's woven, not a print. Uh, kente cloth traditionally is a, a woven cloth, like I said. They produce it in these very very narrow strips, which repeat the chosen pattern. Those blocks, basically, each of those is like a special coded pattern which gets repeated through the through the strip. And then they stitch those long strips together to make a cloth that you could actually wear. Um, the cloth is called kente, and the normal traditional garment that they would wear, which is kind of like a toga, is also called a kente. This is not like the cotton prints of kente fabric that you'll see. Like if you go to a fabric warehouse in Philly, they have a huge selection of kente style cloth, um, which is basically really popular with the black community. And it's become iconic for the you know for the black African diaspora, um, especially in America, but all over the world, it just symbolizes Mother Africa basically. Um, but they have the same problem we do in Tartan in that there's uh, there's a lot of knockoffs. Real official kente cloth. Each pattern has a separate meaning coded into it. A lot of them are designed to emblemize a proverb or a saying or a political statement. Like, I ran across one which basically translated to, uh, yeah, when you climb a good tree, you'll be given a push, is the translation of the statement. And basically meaning, like, if, you, if you're if you working for a good cause, people will support you. 
And those kinds of messages, each one of these blocks could have a different message like that in it. Um, the colors have meaning too, which I find interesting because like Tartan didn't get into doing that until the 20th century, but these guys were saying this color represents this, that color represents that as far back as like the 17th, 18th century. So there's a whole language to this stuff. And again, kind of like Tartan where we have problems with knockoffs, like I was saying before, they have a problem in Ghana in that there are so many knockoffs of kente cloth that there's less income coming into the country to the artisans of the legit art form. So I find that interesting too. So it's like there's, there's another parallel there to what we deal with uh, in the tartan industry. Um, and then the, the final thing, the final bit of trivia, which I thought was fascinating, is that any, any actual kente cloth design uh, that gets invented and produced has to go before the royal house first. And if the king and his court decide they want it, it becomes theirs and nobody else is allowed to wear it. If they reject it, I think they're probably very generous and polite about rejecting it, right? Um, but if they officially reject it, then it becomes something that the public can use and wear. You know, it's, it's set free into the world, basically. Um, and that kind of, that there's a, a weird parallel there between um, uh, clan tartans, you know, for us, and, and a little bit of how some people think that there, well, well, there are tartans that are restricted to the royal family, you know, like the Balmoral tartan. So it's, it's kind of cool just all over the world people are imbuing fabric with all this meaning and stuff. And it's, it's really yeah. awesome. The uh, directly to his question, I think two of the points he asked were you know, effectively, is it a, uh, a cotton or is it a, a, a correct, is it a real kilt and is it woven cloth? So yes, I, I believe it's woven cloth just because you can see the back side of it. If a cloth is printed, it's generally just printed on one side and on the back side, you get some of the bleed through of the pattern on the front side. It's not generally printed, to my knowledge, on both sides. Construction-wise, yes, the kilt looks like it was constructed like a normal kilt. Horsehair sporn appears to be a traditional, normal Scottish horsehair sporn. The one thing that I will say is is interesting is the fabric appears to be, you know, the the the, the real deal type fabric. The kilt appears to be a real deal type kilt, but. As many things go with Hollywood, they take certain liberties, or they want to do things to make it. They twist it for their own for their own purposes. Eric showed me these shots this morning because we were trying to figure out if he was wearing a piper's plaid, and he showed me this, and I was like, "It's not a piper's plaid. It's like sewn into the seam of the vest. It's weird. So it's like a a, a half sash piper plaid hang down the back. Not real. It's just a made up thing. That is straight up Hollywood." Um, the kilt itself, construction-wise, appears to be like the real deal kind of thing. And, and in that shot, you could see it's got the hip strap. He's wearing a kilt belt with it. He's got the horsehair sporn. You can see the uh, the fake piper's plate hanging down the back. It, it's 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 awesome. It's funny though because yeah, we will will always say never wear a, a fly plate or a piper's plate with just a shirt or just a vest. And and here we go. Uh, Madam Carter has basically said, oh yeah, I'll show you what you can do. <laughs> and she made this up. And I'll show it's, it, you two little YouTubelings. <laughs> right, right. It's, 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 I, I kind of get it though, because if he had been in, the movie is built around dancing. The, the dance numbers are fantastic. And Wesley Snipes is an awesome guy. Um, and he really just, I, for, for me, he stole the show. He's, he's a hoot. I, lo I love the guy. But um, I could see where they wouldn't want to have him in a jacket because it'd be harder to move. 
You know what I mean? And the color pop from the shirt really works too. If you know, like the cuff on the the one cuff on the shirt actually is like embroidered or something. So they they made the shirt an integral part of the outfit and lost the bulk of the jacket so he could actually move as the character. Yeah. So it's it's really cool. Yeah, it's, really it's well balancing done. Hollywood cinema, you know, and and movement with I I I can't use the word tradition here, but <laughs> my my tongue won't let won't won't, may, won't let it come out. Um, but yeah, it's finding the balance exactly. Yeah, but yeah, I think it's it, cool to have um, uh, you know different cultures kind of you know intertwine in that way to a degree when it's done well. Um, yep. Like the kilt in a different cloth, I've seen um, uh, way back when uh, the company Calziet, um did uh, some like Native American style blanket intarsia type weave and made them into kilts for the uh, uh, Dress to Kilt show up in New York, um, the fashion week kind of thing. Um, and it's it's neat seeing kilts made out of different cloth. It's not everyone's cup of tea. It's definitely taking it off on a tangent. It's not traditional, but it's just an interpretation from a fashion aspect. I appreciate it in that way. I don't love it. It's not something I would wear on a regular basis, but it's neat to see what people do with it. Yeah, I have a I have a Kelsey, one of those old Kelsey kilts. Remember, it's the it's the uh, the Celtic knotwork one, not the uh, the blanket one. But um, yeah, it's cool, and and it gives me a it gives me a very uh, primal warrior vibe when I wear it. So I really dig it for that. Um, definitely not traditional. Definitely modern spin on tradition. And, and that's what they're going for. I mean, the character, General Easy, he's he's all into being, you know, muy macho, kind of, you know, Generalissimo guy. So I can see why they chose a Highland military aesthetic for that outfit. Because, um, you know, kilts and, and everything, they're associated with weddings because of pipers. So that makes sense. And the whole Highland soldier, Highland military officer kind of thing, it's like the elegant warrior aesthetic. So it totally suits what the character would want to present himself as you know what i mean um the only part i didn't like about it is that the the kente cloth doesn't really lend its well itself well to looking great in the pleats i think the effect is kind of getting lost in the pleats and they look kind of weird and messy in the back because the the, the, the block patterns are all over the place i think they had to do that to some degree because they're sewing together chunks if they would have lined them up perfectly i think you would have gotten the dreaded lawn chair effect where it would just have looked like wide, you know, swaths of the same thing. So they, I'm guessing they staggered it to make it look at least a little different going across the back. Yeah, I would agree. Yeah. Very good. All right. It's neat. Mis Mr. Mac, what do you got for us on deck? All right. So, well, first let's start with what tartans are we all wearing? Sure. Mr. Mac, what are you wearing today? <laughs> <laughs> I am wearing the McMichael tartan. McMichael tartan? Sounds delicious. Oh, it's uh, delightful. Delightful. Yeah. It's lovely. Mr. Eric, what do you have on today? Uh, Mitchell Hunter Galbraith. Hunting. Russell. Russell. <laughs> Yay. Muted. Yes. Many, many names. One. Exactly. Um, today I have on... The Kilts and Culture Tartan for the you know, the namesake of this show, as well as our Facebook group over there on Facebook. Oddly enough, Kilts and Culture. Um, I want to give a shout out to another, a, a Kilts, a, a, a group on Facebook. It doesn't have anything to do with Kilts, but 
I stumbled okay. across across it somehow recently, and I'm like, this is a pretty awesome group. Um, is the Scally Cap Mafia, so I'm wearing my Scally Cap, which is my effectively daily headwear, um, for the show today in honor of Scally Cap Mafia. Um, yeah, indeed. So that kind of, kind of Siamese our... twins, similar, exactly. similar attitudes. Some of the guys, I guess. Yeah, it's the thing yeah. I found most amusing was I when I when I joined the group, I was like, there's got to be like a concentric circle overlap. There's got to be enough guys in this group who also like kilts. And uh, I posted, you know, a picture of myself in a kilt wearing a scala cap, you know, as an introductory thing. A bunch of people jumped on like, oh, I wear kilts too, or you know, they're actually members of Kilts of Culture or other other kilt groups on Facebook. It was it was funny to see like what a small world it is, um, and how much the of, of the, the the people who love scallies or flat caps also dig on kilts. So it's just neat. Well, there's there, there's a there's a wee bit of a Celtic connection, especially an Irish connection there. I think just a skosh, yeah, a little bit, a little bit, yeah. And I, I would say I'd argue there's a there's a manliness quotient to both, and an individualist quotient to both. I would say, yeah, you know, absolutely. All right, Mr. Mac. All right, so we have Stray Cat sixteen seventy four asking the best way to store a gray kilt: fold, rolling, or is there another way? Jumble it in, in a it. ball and throw it in the corner. <laughs> yep. Wet, yep. if you can, and make sure it's like a damp corner so it never really dries. Gets that that delicious yeah. musk that yeah. the Highlanders were known for. Yes. Um, yes. Yep. The uh, now it's effectively um, after you wear a great kill out for the day. Generally, I would just lay it out overnight, lay it as as flat and open to kind of gas off and dry out overnight and then once it's done i would just fold it put it in a cedar chest or something like that um so moths don't get at it but yeah just fold it i mean you could theoretically roll it but i mean it's going to be really long a really long roll if you do that so you might as well just fold it up like a blanket yeah you can you yeah. can roll it on a long tube um like that's how the fabric yeah. comes to us from scotland but if you do that it's going to take up more room you can fold it in half and roll it on a half board or um, you know a smaller tube. Um, the problem with that would be when you take it back out to wear it, you're going to have a crease, you know, going you know right across the middle um, at you know the halfway mark, 27 inches or whatever halfway is. Yeah, it's hard for me hard for me to determine if, if you'd even notice that once you had the thing on, once you're wearing it. I think you would because but, it would technically it would be about okay. up here. Because think about it, or or it would be you know down here. Uh, it depends on how you're folding your great kill, but the okay. uh, you have about 24 inches from you know belly to knee from where you put your belt. So anything about six inches or five inches above that is going to be where the the crease would be. So you might see it. That's why I'm that's why I'm saying that. Okay, this is a total tangent, but it just occurred to me: how cool would it be as a mantelpiece display to take a a, a bunch of your tartan, your family clan tartan? And fold it like a flag, and put it into one of those wooden flag holders on your mantelpiece. That'd be kind of cool. I think cool. it would probably it would. You'd have to get a bigger flag holder, because a flag yeah. is three <laughs> by five, right. um, generally. Where a a great kilt is going to be like four or five yards at fifty four to sixty inches no, wide. I'm not, even, I'm not even thinking about the kilt. I'm just thinking about some fabric, you know. 
when you retire when you retire your great kilt after your 20th Culloden reenactment and you know it's no good anymore then you you know, cut it in half fold it up like a flag and put it in the, put it in the thing okay I can uh, see that why not yeah why not yeah people but, yeah. you know people frame stuff all the time that'd be a different and neat way to kind of do that sure maybe absolutely all right Mr. Eric what do you got next all right okay Joe Groves hi Joe uh, one of our regular question submitters. Um, he asked if there's a way to reduce or eliminate uh, the pilling that you get on the front apron of a kilt, especially in the area of the sporin. Yep. You might want to explain pilling a little bit. Yep. Uh, pilling is the little tiny balls you get on the surface of a fabric. Generally, it's going to be synthetic fabric, um, usually like acrylic and stuff like that, and you get them from rubbing. So on the front of your kilt where your sporin rubs, or more importantly, where your sporin chain rubs on the kilt. Um, if you have an acrylic or a synthetic kilt, it will pill up over time, depending on how often you wear it, depending on how tightly you have your sporin on, that kind of stuff. We, this is not meant to sound like a product plug. Our polyviscose kilts are polyester rayon, However, they are also Teflon coated and have what the mill calls their anti-pill fiber technology, which basically means it's a coating on the fabric that you can rub the surface of it and it takes a lot longer for it to pill up than if it wasn't treated or than if it was like acrylic or something like that. So if you're getting pilling on the surface of your fabric, A, you probably have a less expensive kilt. I've never had a pilling issue on wool kilts. You wanna look at your sporin chain, sporin chains, are what is called flat link chain. The links, you know, don't go like this. They, they twist and they lay flat when it, you can actually lay it flat on a table. So um, where the welds are on the chain, if they don't weld it well, or it's a, a cheaper chain, sometimes they'll, you'll have like a little burr or something and that'll kind of rub on the surface of the fabric. Um, or if the back of the sporin um, is a rough leather, or if it's like rough on the edges from a harder, cardboardy type leather um, that can tend to rub on the fabric and when you have less expensive fabric and a less expensive for sporin they kind of you know form like Voltron for a, uh, a negative <laughs> experience yes I'm Voltron showing my age suck. form like Voltron absolutely um, <laughs> and then you get that constant rubbing as you walk around at the festival or out for the day or whatever and then that constant rubbing kind of pulls at the little tiny fibers and it makes them ball up and then you're left with little pills on the surface of your fabric any thoughts before i go into how to get rid of them do you have any other thoughts on that part eric no i just have the voltron theme and going like a broken regular like that da, 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 da. and all form the pill um but uh no i was gonna say go ahead go ahead into i think that covers it so go ahead into how do you deal with it Sure. Um, you can get a, uh, a fabric shaver, um, which is basically a little, uh, think of it like a, an airplane engine turbine kind of thing. But instead of, you know, the normal things, you have little razor blades and little razor blades behind a screen, and, like a loose screen. And you put that on your fabric and you kind of run it over top and the pills kind of go up through the little holes in the screen and then the razor blades come and scrape them all off. Um, so you can get that if you don't want to go out and buy something. Uh, you can use a like a Bic disposable razor 
lay the fabric flat on a table, shave gently over top of the fabric going with the grain, and it'll take the pills off the surface of the fabric. You have to be careful, you're using a razor around the kilt, which is why the fabric shaver is a good idea. But uh, yeah, those are the two ways that I tend to tell people to get rid of the pills on the surface of their fabric. And then for your next kilt, invest in something that's not gonna pill as much. Pretty, yeah, pretty straightforward. Yep, yeah. Cool. Mr. Mac. So apparently we've got a lot of questions about gray kilts today. So we have Anthony asking, out of curiosity, are there any mills that do 60 inch width for use for a gray kilt? He knows that a lot of mills do 55 inch, but is interested in a wider one. Yeah. Um, <clears throat> I will start by saying this. For, for a gray kilt, that's a very intelligent question. You wanna make sure, especially if you are over six foot tall, that you're getting the widest fabric you can for your great kilt. You wanna be able to wrap it up and pull it over the shoulder and you know, meet up here, pull it over the head like a thing. And if you pull it up over your head and it's too short, it's good. <laughs> you're, gonna be, you're gonna be hiking it up above the knee. So that's, you know, it's a very good question. Um, the mills typically say, like La Karen will say 54 inches wide on their double width. Martin Mills will say 58 to 60 inches wide. It's kind of a range. Um, the mill will weave the cloth, and then when they go to the finisher, the mill is going to tell the finisher, "Okay, I want the cloth stretched to this." So when they, you know, they they wash it, they clean it, they you know treat it, and all that kind of stuff at the finisher, it they're pulling it and setting it at a specific width, and they're putting it on tenterhooks and like you know pulling it kind of thing. So there's always going to be. A, a range. I, I don't want to say specifically, yes, this cloth is exactly 60 inches because God knows you're going to need exactly 60 and the piece that I get is going to be 58 and a half. It's, it's kind of a range. Double, that's why most mills just say double width. They don't really say exactly this width. They say double width. But most mills are on the very low end for double width, 54 inches. On the high end, 60 some 11 ounce cloths, I think even go up to like 62. Um, but that's kind of the range. What I would say is if you're concerned about the length or the width of the bolt for your great kilt, drop us an email and say, hey, I want to get the Mitchell muted tartan. What mill, and I'm six foot three, I want to get a, the widest bolt I can get for a great kilt. What mills can I go with? And then we'll look at the mills, we'll email them and say, hey, what do you have on the rack right now or you know on the shelf right now what's the width of the bolt tell us and we can go back to you on that but generally speaking martin mills strathmore are 58 to 60 inches wide um la karen's double width is 54 house of eggers double width is 55 i believe the nevis range um or their Balmoral range or, or heberding range excuse me um and who am i missing batley's um, they're, I think they're about 58 as well. So it's, it's a sliding scale-ish to a degree. Hmm. Anything to add to that, okay. Mr. Eric? Not really, except that I can appreciate wanting the extra width if you're a bigger, taller guy. But at the same time, they weren't going to be that consistent back two, 300 years ago either. So it's kind of a modern 
It's a it, we're we're wanting a modern convenience that may not have existed back then. Well, um, they would have pieced it together. Right, right. Which is, I suppose, would be another option. Um, but but yeah. There's there's nothing nothing major about it. But yeah, if you're a tall guy getting the Gary kilt, you definitely want to make sure that it's the widest you can get. All right, Mr. Eric, what's our next question? Okay. I'm curious what these other uh, gray kilt questions Matt has are. Flat but, uh, cap of the gray kilt. <laughs> you could. All right, Charles Bauer uh, is a Texan, and uh, he says he inter he's interested in wearing a tweed vest for outerwear in general, uh, not necessarily always paired with a kilt, though he does wear kilts. Um, he says uh, his default when he's not in a kilt is to be wearing a Western-style shirt. Um, you know, the kind with the, the pearl snaps and everything, and a uh, pair of jeans and cowboy boots. So he's wondering if, you know, the, the kilt-style, Highland-style tweed vest would look good with that look. Um, should he consider adding lapels to the waistcoat? Uh, and he's wondering, this is a good question just for clarification for everybody. Uh, he's asking if the lapels go all the way around to form a collar or if they stop. Um, and uh, does it make sense or, uh, or, or not? Sure. Um, Would it work? The to some degree, I'll, I'll say you know, would you wear would you wear a vest? You know, take Kylan wear out of it. Would you wear a vest with a cowboy shirt and jeans and a pair of cowboy boots? Um, if the answer is yes, I'm not up on my cowboy fashion. Um, I will plead a bit of ignorance. Um, that Eric's Eric's got a little bit more exposure, um, but. If you would wear it with it, then sure. I'm I'm happy he didn't say that he wanted to wear a kilt with a cowboy shirt. That <laughs> I would probably have a lot strong and pair of cowboy boots. I'd probably have a lot stronger opinion on. Um, but the vest itself, my only my only thought would be making sure if you're if you're trying to have one vest to wear with a kilt or with your with your cowboy shirt and jeans. I'd say, yes, it could probably work. I would make sure that you're getting a vest with the peaked, you know, uh, peaks on the bottom um, so that they go down a little bit further. I wouldn't want to get a vest like super, super long because then it wouldn't look great with kilts, but it would look okay with the, with the, with a pair of jeans and a shirt. On the other side, you can get one that's long, but it wouldn't look good with the other. So it's, it's a balancing act. You have to kind of find that happy medium where it's a little bit long for the kilt, but still acceptable, a little bit short for the jeans, but still acceptable, fine. And the, the, the peaks on the bottom kind of help bridge that a little bit. Yeah, I think that how, how well it will be able to traverse both styles of clothing will possibly depend on your body type. If you're really skinny, you might get away with it better. Um, <clears throat> I'm not sure if you'd get away with it as well if you have a belly, uh, just because things tend to ride a little bit differently. Uh, and the vest is gonna stick out a little bit more. So my basic thought would be, personally, I wouldn't combine a roper or like a panhandle slim kind of shirt. Um, yes, I've worn them. Uh, Arizona. Uh, so basically, um, some of the rodeo shirts are a little more full cut now and have fuller sleeves. I think those will look better with a vest in general. The classic cowboy shirt, Western shirt, like panhandle slim is an old brand name. Um, uh, the, it's cut very close to the body, the sleeves are very skinny, 
and the yoking details are very prominent. That, I think, looks odd with a vest. I think those, those shirts were really meant to be worn without any layers on top of them. They're just supposed to show off on their own. They're kind of a work of art by themselves. If you go for a more vintage cowboy shirt, like, you know, something from Scully's, um, uh, Wawmaker, those guys, uh, or even, dare I say it, you know, the, the grandfather shirts that we sell, because those are in the mode, they're more fully cut with a, a, a larger sleeve, and they're a little more blousey. They'll look better with a vest as a result. And you don't have the detailing on those that's going to interfere with the look of the vest the way, I think, the yokes and the... It's mostly the yoke I'm worried about. And the prints, the prints are the prints. Um, but the, the yokes, I think, would look odd coming out from underneath a vest. And the flap pockets would just look odd underneath a vest if you wear the vest open. It might work. I'd say the probability of it working well are fair to low. Therefore, I'd get a vest that works better with kilts because you're gonna get more use out of it with your kilt than you would with a cowboy shirt and jeans and that kind of thing, probably. So you know, your, your mileage may vary. You may, you may put it on and be like, dude, this is my new look. That's it, every single day, going to the office, that's what I'm wearing. Right. <laughs> more power to you. Um, right. But it's, uh, but I'd, if it were me, I would, I would buy it for the kilt and then try it on in my home and say, okay, does this work? Can I make it work? If yes, sure, great. If not, don't worry about it. Uh, the 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 collar, or the, the lapels on it, he asked if they were all the way around or just the front. The lapels on the vest, at least the vest that we sell, actually end right at the shoulder seam right up here. So they're just lapels for the front. They do not go around the back of the neck. And that's normal for most vests because you wouldn't want to have that excess fabric interfering with the collar of a jacket when you're wearing the vest with the jacket. So that's actually pretty normal. Like even, you know, like the Western wear vests I've seen are the same deal most of the time. Yeah. Can you think, Eric, can you think of in your in your vest cowboy experience, um, uh, <laughs> thinking back to your childhood as a cattle rustler, can, <laughs> can, hmm. can you think of hmm. any, uh, like I'm, I'm picturing like Lone Ranger and I don't remember him ever wearing a vest. Um, can you picture anything, no. any cowboy shirt with a vest or anything over top other than maybe, maybe no. a leather vest kind of thing? Um, it's, yeah, I mean, sometimes you, like, especially if you're talking like the, the 70s and when things were just generally awkward, almost on purpose. <laughs> I can see guys with fringe, fringe vests and stuff. Yeah, like talking about like my dad's day, you know, um, uh, wearing a leather vest, like a suede vest with a cowboy shirt. And something about the suede, it becomes forgivable. You know what I mean? The way in the 70s things were just kind of like very loosey-goosey in terms of putting different styles together in general. And that went over into Western wear too. Uh, but most of the time, I mean, the, the, the traditional cowboy shirt comes from the 50s. It was a kind of an invention from Hollywood. It was loosely based on work shirts uh, from the old from the old West. Um, and, and it was mostly meant to be worn by itself to, to show off. I mean, the, the old ones... Had all kind of, you got all the designs on the yokes, you know, the embroidery, and you got the snaps and, and all those details. It's kind of a showpiece on its own. Um, I've seen guys wear the, wear vests over them, but it doesn't look good to me. It's it's supposed to be its own thing, in my opinion. I mean, a work shirt or a vintage style shirt, fine. You know, like you got like a denim work shirt or, or, or a Carhartt's like a canvas, not canvas, duck, like a duck work shirt with a vest on top. That, that looks really cool. And you'll see that a lot like at SASS shoots and stuff like that. So, yeah. Yeah, That's indeed. All right, Mr. Mac, what do we got? 
So we have Howard asking, Firstborn, what's the deal with Seal? Legal, legit, what are your thoughts? Sure. Sealsborns are very, very legit. That's traditionally what dressborns made from for at least 100 years. Seal is a very, very hard-wearing fur. Um, it's got a nice sheen to it. It's shorter hair. Um, it's, you know, beautiful works of art. It's legal in Canada. It was legal in Scotland up until, I want to say, like 2010-ish, around there. And then all of a sudden they said, nope, seal is banned. And apparently it was banned for a few years. Um, and the Inuit Indians were you know, laboring the EU. The EU is who banned it. And the Inuit Indians were petitioning the EU saying, look, this is our livelihood. We need this. So the EU allowed for you know, specific things for seal. And they said, okay, fine, you can sell it. But each individual hide has to go, you know, has to have a serial number, has to go back to the animal to be able to trace it straight back. So it's a much more regulated industry, so to speak. Um, so now it is legal again in Scotland. It is still not legal in the US. So if you're in the US and you want to seal sporing, so sorry, so sad. Um, the, even if you bought it in Scotland, you, I didn't say this, now that I'm recording it on video, but I didn't say this, but some people might try to sneak it through customs or mail it to yourself. However, it's not, you're not allowed to have it in the US. It's like, we can't, as a company, we cannot import them, we cannot sell them. Um, bovine is probably the closest in hard-wearing and shorter hair to seal. It's not the same thing, but it's similar enough. Um, and there's a lot of other types of furs that, you know, you can get into rabbit fur or musquash or mink or all these different kind of things. But yes, seal is very, very traditional. It's a flatter, like a flatter pelt. It's not quite as dense as some of them out there, but it's very hard wearing. It's got a great sheen to it, period. Mr. Eric. Yeah, has anybody done a, talking about the bovine, has anybody tried to do like a dye of bovine to do a mock seal pelt? And uh, if they have, is it any good? When, I mean, during the ban in Scotland, it got bad because all the Scottish companies wanted seal, they couldn't get them. So the next best thing was bovine or pony. That was the other substitute for seal was pony. Um, the problem was the industry, the, bon the pony and the bovine industries were not able to keep up with the demand. And frankly speaking, there weren't enough gray cows or gray ponies to be able to supply. So, you know, how many gray cows do you see out in the field? So they ended up using like more and more white, but none of the people buying the stuff wanted white or very, very few. So I, I specifically remember both, you know, W. Scott and Morrison's, like all these different sporing companies started toying around with different ideas. They would dye uh, they would dye bovine fur, or dye you know, big sheets of bovine. Uh, Battleship gray was the color, um, which <laughs> is like a flat gray, like primer gray kind of color. And huh. it just didn't have any luster to it. Um, yeah, yeah, yeah. Some of them started monkeying around with tweed, using tweed face to the sporin. And that's kind of where it became 
to some degree, like where it kind of became in fashion, so to speak, was around that same period because everyone was clamoring for new sources for frontages for sporins other than seal because they couldn't get seal anymore. Um, and it got the, the my, fa my favorite story, and I don't know if he's gonna appreciate me saying it, but I'll say it anyway. Um, my favorite story is some of the spore, I'll, I'll leave him nameless. Some of the spore makers, <laughs> at least one I know of, was getting really, really, really hard up for getting cow hides, for getting bovine. He couldn't get them anywhere because it was so scarce because every industry that used it was buying them all at the same, that used seal was buying bovine. So he actually went to Ikea and was buying the bovine rugs that Ikea sells to make sport, because it's just a cowhide, but Ikea had a ton of them. So he was getting them from there. Like you could get, like that's how desperate some companies were getting was like, we need any source for it at all, anywhere, just to get something. So that's how crazy it got. That's nuts. Yup. That's, so, that's like, interesting. It's, 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 it's neat, interesting, horrible, weird, whatever, um, whatever, insert adjective here to see how one government thing changing a regulation, changing what's allowed or not allowed has a knock-on effect to multiple industries across the globe, you know, all these different things. And it screwed things up royally for a few years until they kind of said, uh, okay, we're going to let it again. Necessity is a mother. Is the other thing. I mean, that you, you got some creativity as a result. I mean, uh, you just made me realize that, that that may have been a spur to some of the, the kind of the cool things we have now, like the tweed sporns. You know, there are some designs that I would suspect that some makers, because they couldn't get seal, thought in terms of, well, how can we make the rest of the sporin interesting enough that people won't mind the fact that it's not seal? You know, so some of the some of the cooler designs we have in the last 10 years or so are probably born of some of that. But Yep. And when they dyed the gray, it was so blah that they were trying like they got so much pushback and they were like well this is this is the only color that we're offering in non-black we're like no it looks horrible no give us something else and that's why they started toying around with the tweed and that kind of thing so yeah it's it's neat to see to watch like it was horrible but it's neat to watch it evolve and like how it happened while it was happening so yeah <laughs> interesting all right my turn uh sure i think it's my turn right I have no idea. Okay. Um, so, uh, yeah. Now, Justin Smith uh, commented that he uh, knows that on the shows we're always using the Glen Cairn glasses for the scotch. And he's wondering why are the Glen Cairn glasses a thing? You know, are they really good for tasting scotch? And would we recommend using them for other kinds of alcoholic beverages? What's the deal with Glen Cairn glasses? What's the By the way, this has, this scotch has opened up a little bit. It's a little nicer now. But. Okay, I I have mine as well, and since it's a Glencairn question, I will now drink again. Um, <clears throat> the Glencairn glass. There's a really really cool story for the origin story of the Glencairn glass, designed by Glencairn Crystal, Andy Davidson, a friend of ours. His father owns a company, and they. They make glass, they make all these different goblets, all these really, really cool things out of crystal and out of glass. And he wanted to design a, a glass for drinking scotch. And he designed it and shoved it away in the back of a filing cabinet drawer. And then like 
15 or 20 years later, they found it in the back of the drawer and he pulled it out and he's like, oh yeah, I remember making this. I should shop this around to some of the master distillers and see if anyone, you know, kind of digs on it. And everyone loved it. Um, it's, you know, when you have your scotch below the, the, the bulb of the glass, it allows a little bit more surface area. It's right. tapered at the top to kind of focus the smells up into your nose. Um, when you put your lip on it, the, the other edge of the glass, put your the glass on your lip, the other edge hits right on the tip of your nose. So it's focusing all the aromas mm -hmm. right up into your nose. Um, so it really, it's, without trying to sound like nerdy about it, it does change the experience to a degree. If you if you have a general, a regular rocks glass, it's four inch or so diameter. So when you put it up to your mouth, it's almost coming up to like the bridge of your nose. And it's a lot more of it is escaping. A lot more, you know, the surface area is a lot bigger. This, you know, focuses it right up in your nose and allows you to experience it, you know, in the mouth as well as in the nose in a slightly better way. My palate is not quite that refined. We do it just because they look cool. Uh, but the- uh, No, they work. Uh, they work, but, this helps. Yes, but not... experts will say that it helps. This has become the bog standard for uh, all the master distillers over in Scotland. They actually copyrighted the shape of the glass. And I think their copyright expired like a year or two ago. So now there's probably gonna be more companies making the shape of the glass, but they had the copyright on this shape glass for quite a long time. It's it it's the same idea as like a brandy snifter in some ways, except you're you're not warming it. I've never seen the Angai hold it like I could see doing this maybe, but I don't think this is what they do. But I mean you would usually use a snifter like this to warm up the beverage so you get more of the aromas coming out. Um, I've never seen seen anybody do that with whiskey, but it does work with other alcohols. I use this for rums and stuff. Um, it just because of the same principle. You know, you're still you're just capturing more of the aromatics and everything. It's yeah. It just feels nice too. I mean, it's a comfortable glass. It's it's elegant, but not stuffy like a wine glass too. So I think there's something to it, you know, on a lot of levels. So yeah, yeah, and they're not. It's not like they're that expensive. Sure beats a shot glass. Right, or a jelly jar. Don't ask me how I know. <laughs> I don't think I like drinking scotch out of like a mason's jar, <laughs> like sweet tea on the back porch. I have no. I have nothing. I have nothing to say about that. Indeed. I wouldn't know anything about that. Yeah, so no, it's whether you get it from us or somebody else. If you like scotch or you like bourbon or you know anything like that, try it out of a Glencairn glass. It does yeah. make a bit of a difference if you yep. know what you're looking for. Um, and even if you don't, it probably does. Right. Yeah, like I said, they're not expensive, so why not? Yeah. Indeed. Cool. All right, was that you or Mac? That was me. All right, Mr. Mac. Well, before we get to the next question, I think it's time to do something. Our ambassador this week is the incomparable, the amazing, the one and only Sarah Jo Fegley. Sarah Jo is one of those people who covers the whole breadth of Highland dress in the sense of she takes everything from punk rock, super cash, all the way up to full formal and elegant. And her history is that she got into kilts as a result of being in a pipe band. She comes from a musical family which has both Scottish and German ancestry. And 
they were very musical and she showed an aptitude for music at a very early age. She started playing drums at the age of, I think, five and very quickly showed talent for it. So they thought about her joining school bands over the years, but it never quite felt right to Sarah Jo. Uh, so her mom, genius move at one point, said, you know what, maybe you should consider joining a bagpipe band. And so they went and saw a performance by a band. And this was back in 2000. She was at the tender age of 13. They went to see a band perform, and she said, yep, that's what I want to do. And after the performance, basically marched right up to the band and said, hey, I want to join. And this is a very old school, very traditional, regimental kind of band. And at first they were kind of like, <laughs> yeah, right, kid. But they took her seriously. She learned, she joined, and she is now a, a very accomplished snare drummer. Uh, to the point that uh, she was uh, the uh, midsection teacher for our very own local Philadelphia Police and Fire pipe band. She does competitions. Um, she regrets the fact that in the past year they've been virtual. Um, and she misses doing band performances, of course, the way we all do. Um, but uh, she's also been very accomplished with doing small gigs uh, that she does for you know the usual weddings and stuff like that. Um, she's basically dedicated to teaching and spreading the joy of the drum, you could say. Uh, now, back to the kilts, she basically got into kilts because of being in the band, um, but she got to the point where she was wearing them so regularly for the band that she wanted to start incorporating them into life in general. She actually did a, a homemade kilt uh, for a spirit day in her high school at one point, you know, and uh, uh, it's basically, you know, took off from there. You know, the, the whole eating peanuts thing happened, and she wound up wearing them more often, so... Uh, Sarah Jo is now at the point where, you know, she got married in a kilt. That's probably one of the few times she ever felt nervous about wearing it, she says, because she didn't know how they would take a woman wearing a kilt, a man's kilt, in Scotland. But she says as soon as she got off the plane, they were like, oh, that's a great kilt, you know, and, and she was able to easily find people who appreciate it. They thought she looked awesome. They appreciated that she was wearing it. And as she says, it's basically a way of flying a flag for your tribe. So she very quickly found her peers in the piping community and the drumming community because of the kilt and uh, has been doing it on the regular. Um, so yeah, she's she's one of those people, like I said, she, she her personal style is everything from, you know, very punk, very street, all the way up to full formal. She described to me how she feels like tweeds and furs and all the traditional accents and accessories for wearing a kilt. It's like you're wearing a time machine. It's like you are a walking piece of living history and she loves that aspect of it. Uh, at the same time, she's not afraid to put on some combat boots and a leather jacket with a kilt. So she's one of those people who's just she's got a lot. Of, she's got a zest for life, and she uh, makes kilts a part of that as well as music. So that's Sarah Jo in a nutshell. So here's to you. Cheers, Sarah Jo. I hope to see you again soon. Yeah, it's logic. Now, one other thing about Sarah Jo is that she's a uh, she's a bushcrafter. She, uh, one of the places she wears her kilts a lot of time these days is for bushcrafting. She actually teaches, uh, helps teach with the Appalachian Bushman Academy or Appalachian Bushman School, um, which is fairly local to us. Um, check them out online as Coalcracker Coal Bushcraft. The guy who runs the school does a YouTube channel, which I highly recommend. And she is a big advocate, Sarah Jo is, for hiking in a kilt and the kilt as basically being the ultimate garment for hiking and i have a list of some of her reasons why she would recommend it to people if i may sure okay so sarah joe fegley bushcrafter advises a kilt for hiking for the following reasons full exposure from chafing 
the apron doesn't get in the way of anything. Easier in and out and up and down when you're tent camping. So if you're a ground camper, it's a lot easier to, to deal with the garment getting in and out of bed. Um, part of that I can say is basically when you're in a sleeping bag, the recommendation is usually that you strip off your outer layer regular clothes, even if you're feeling cold, because you're gonna create a more successful air pocket inside the bag. So a kilt obviously would be easier for doing that. Um, it's easier to relieve yourself. Being female, she, she feels that very particularly. It's a lot easier, you know. Um, helps with regulating body temperature when you're changing altitude. Uh, and then it's also easier for uh, dealing with bugs. If you get any bugs or anything on your legs, it's easy to, to find them and remove them. And uh, finally, it dries quickly because it wicks away moisture. So that's, that's from somebody who she's into bushcraft up to the point where she's like doing... Yeah, you know, she's lighting her fires with flint and steel and moss, okay? She's serious about this. Um, goes on 30-mile hikes on a regular basis. So I, I wanted to give that shout-out for that. Um, anybody out there who also hikes in a kilt, I'm curious to know what they think. But I think those are really strong arguments. You forgot one. I did? Dead sexy on the trail. Right, right. All the rattlesnakes and the bears really like it. Exactly. <laughs> Getting cat calls from bears. <laughs> I will say that I will say this. Like um, when I was talking with Sarah, she was talking about how there's a there's a one trail up in north northwestern, I think, PA that she goes on, um, Pennsylvania Pride, and she said one of the cool things about it is the other hikers that you'll meet on the trail. So yeah, even in the wilderness, a kilt could be an icebreaker. <laughs> you yep. know, um, I know that there are high tech hiking skirts now. Um, and, uh, and, and and we know guys in the community who hike in kilts all the time. So, um, but uh, everybody's got different reasons. I think the comfort is the main thing and she really accentuated the practical side of the comfort. Yeah. Yeah. I agree. Now I was actually talking to somebody, uh, a customer of ours who designs tartans and uh, he was toying around with designing a bushcrafter tartan. And I thought that would be a pretty BA idea um, yeah. So I might I might toy around with that as well. Um, yeah. With him. Go for but it. But yeah, indeed. Yeah, hike, hiking in kilts is absolutely done. It's absolutely a great idea as long as your pack doesn't sit on a weird spot on your on your kilt and hurt you. You know, have at it. Yeah. When people have asked us about it in the past, I've usually recommended a lighter weight casual kilt like ours, and specifically I can talk about ours because that's the one I know. But uh, it's got the Velcro closure, so it's a flat waistband you don't have to have a belt with it um it does not have the straps or the bulk that a traditional wool kilt will have um so if you're concerned about the the the, the hip strap of your pack being in the way you don't have to worry about it um so yeah there's some, there's something to be said for that and i think polyviscose for a hiking kilt is good too because weight equals pain um so at the very least for warmer month i think the pv is a good is a good idea and that's what she uses she uh, like the pictures we showed of sarah um, she's wearing a, uh, one of our polyviscose casual kilts in the, uh, Kilts and Culture Tartan. So. Indeed. Keep it simple. Exactly. Mr. Mack, so what questions do we have? Alrighty, so I missed out on who said this because the, the system decided to jump on me, but I did get the question. So... It says, I got into kilts through buying utility kilts in various colors. I want to make the jump to a regular kilt, but I enjoy the accessibility of pockets give me. Are there any smaller dayspawns out there? 
smaller day sporins. Yeah, I would think he would want to go bigger or more or pouches or something along those lines. Sure. Or does he want to? Um, does he want to wear a sporin on the side or something? Is that? No, no. Uh, he's he's started off wearing utility kilts. He wants to go into more traditional style kilts. Right. He but he likes the pockets that the utility kilts give him. He's looking for more pocket ideas for wearing with a regular kilt. Huh. Okay. Um, a traditional kilt doesn't really have pockets, so to speak. So you're stuck with you know your spore, and this is where you carry your stuff. Um, the there's one company over in Scotland called 21st Century Kilts. They make two external like big old pockets on the front of the kilt, generally made out of the same fabric as the kilt. That's one option. Another option that we've done on occasion is what I affectionately call the crotch pocket, um, which is on the under apron of the kilt, centered between the knees, um, down near the bottom. Um, put a small pocket, just basically enough for like credit cards or you know stuff like that, just things that you may want to hide. Um, but yeah, no, for the most part, Traditional kilts do not have pockets. That is what the sporing is for. Um, and generally they're uh, a, a traditional sporings are more simple, plain kind of, you know, day sporing, you know, with tassels or without tassels and whatever. Um, Mr. Eric, any thoughts? Yeah, I have a couple. Um, let me let me make an argument for tradition over utility kilts for a second. Um, I started off with utility kilts too. I have, I still own like three of them now. I think I sold a couple. Um, so good on you and good on the original utility kilt from utilikilts.com. They are a great company and made in America. Um, the flaw sometimes I've had with utility kilts, uh, as I've learned over the years, is that I really like those cargo pockets, but sometimes they also kind of get in my way. And the, mo the most obvious place they do is when I'm driving. Um, I don't like how the pockets kind of bunch up around the seat and the, the structure in my narrow car cockpit and, and the seat belt. So um, cargo pockets are not all they're cracked up to be. Um, I used to love them for carrying things like diapers and baby wipes <laughs> when I was out with the family. And it was like, you know, wipes in this pocket, diaper in this pocket, good to go. Um, but uh, most of the time, I actually prefer a sporin. I like the generally lighter silhouette of a traditional kilt over the, the blockiness of a utility kilt. Um, the sporin itself is very handy and faster to get in and out of than a side pocket sometimes. Again, like if you're in a constrained space like you're driving, it's easy to just go like this. You're done. You got your thing. As opposed to kind of rooching around to get the, the pocket here. And the other advantage you'll find uh, once you get into this is that uh, the sporin is removable in a moment's notice. So you can also just kind of gone. Um, if you need to augment, if you're thinking of using a sporn with one of your utility kilts, it can be done. You might find it looks a little awkward. If you're going the opposite direction, doing a traditional kilt, but you're concerned that the sporn won't give you the cargo space you need, I would say, yeah, get a softer leather, nice utilitarian day sporn, and then consider using a belt pouch or two um, for excess stuff. Um, the main purpose I found that people are using belt pouches for nowadays is for cell phones. Cell phones have gotten so much larger in the past couple of years that uh, a large size leather pouch like um, bagpipers will typically use for carrying spare parts um, can be very handy as a, as a phone holster. And then the Sporin takes care of just about everything else. But 
your your phone can go in the belt pouch and that's a really good system a lot of guys will go with that so um, you don't have to be limited to just the sporin but I think you'll find that if you just find a sporin that you think is comfortable and you get your hand in and out of comfortably you're gonna be good to go two other minor points I'm gonna bring up um, one similar to one you just went to but I'm gonna go a step further when you're wearing a sporin if you need to if you need to move it you can just slide it to the side and you don't have to worry about it being stuck in a position um, like your cargo pockets are number two if you are like me and you suffer from what we affectionately call noacetol disease um, where you have a flat butt um, you're if you load down your cargo pockets on a utility kilt with stuff especially heavy stuff um, your kilt can kind of fall down over time where a traditional kilt is worn up higher so and you don't have as much and your the weight of your stuff is in a sporin it doesn't pull the kilt down so you don't end up with like a kilted plum <laughs> kilted plumbers crack yeah <laughs> but uh yeah it's it's <laughs> the struggle is real eric the struggle is real no it no you're right i'm glad you brought that up because i've had um i'm not going to diss on utility kilts too much because i still like them but one of the problems I used to have, one of the problems I realized I had with them after I switched to traditional kilts, was that all the weight on a on a utility kilt, a cargo kilt, is on the belt line. So all the weight of the kilt is just resting on that one thing, and it will slide down, especially if you don't got a butt, um, and it will get a little awkward and just going, and and you will feel the weight of stuff in your pockets over time. Um, so you're absolutely right. And the the uh, uh, now I have the advantage of having had custom made. You, uh, traditional kilts so I have the advantage of the fact that it's made for my waistline and it's also fitted around my posterior because it's custom measured and that makes it all fit better more snugly and hang better and yeah again I don't have that problem I don't have the drag down problem that you do with a, a utility kilt so yeah it's a good point it's a good point thank you I try so yeah just pick up a sporn you like and roll with it you'll yeah. learn over time all right Mr. Eric next one Okay. Let's keep them rolling. We have rolling, 45 rolling. minutes left. I want to get 27 questions more. Let's go. Okay, yeah. lightning round. All right. Uh, <laughs> I don't think I can do, do that fast. This is one. This is one I'm pretty sure will shaggy dog on a little bit. So I'll do it first. Um, Daniel wears suits on Instagram. Uh, pointed out as we have noted sometimes, uh, with the rise of shows like Peaky Blinders, Saxon suiting uh, has seen a huge increase in vintage style. He's wondering if we would say the same has happened for Highland slash Celtic clothing. And if yes, what garments or styles would we recommend to try and put together a, an 1850 to 1920 Highland look? Um, I think we need to reduce that time scale a little bit. But that's basically, he's saying, are we seeing vintage style? How can you do vintage style? Um, I'll leave, I'll leave the, the time scale bit to you. You're more the, you're more the historian than me. I will say okay. this. Peaky Blinders, spectacular show. I will lump into that in similar but different ways. Boardwalk Empire, Downton Abbey, all the period shows from the early 1900s, in my opinion, definitely had something to do with, you know, uh, pushing fashion a specific way. Um, the, I myself, you know, when I, I, was, when I was watching Boardwalk Empire a few years ago, um, I was getting all kinds of ads that I started thinking about, do I want to get a tweed like 1920s style suit 
And then, you know, when I started watching uh, Peaky Blinders, uh, maybe I want to get it. I don't know. Um, but it's, yeah, it definitely, it's a great look. It's, 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 there's just something about it. And those shows, you know, authenticity aside, the costuming, you know, because you know, to varying degrees of success, but the costuming on those shows is awesome looking. I love the tweed suits, the whole thing. I do think that has affected the macro culture of fashion in general. Facebook knows me. Uh, the number of ads I get for, you know, my tweed suit maker guy or whatever, um, for tweed suits custom made just for you, $400, whatever it is, um, which have tempted the hell out of me. Um, and, and things like that. It's, it's definitely in the zeitgeist. And I do think that there is a parallel and unique way that, that Highland wear kind of fits into it, where it's, because it's in the zeitgeist of fashion, it's also in the zeitgeist of Highland wear, because it's, it's a tangential kind of thing, but it also harkens back to traditional Highland wear. Um, so it it's, it's a weird mixy matchy crossover of people that would enjoy it for different reasons. One, because it's fashionable. Two, because it's traditional. Like there's all kinds of different reasons why people could get into this. There's a reason why tweed jacket and vests and kilts and in pipe bands and things like that have been on the rise in the past 10 years because it looks friggin' awesome. Fashion designers, things like that are using it in their stuff. It is a classic, timeless look that anybody can appreciate. It's earthy, it's natural. There's just something about it that high fashion couture, you know, beaded gowns, all that kind of, they can't emulate this, the natural feel of tweed and that kind of fashion from back then. Yeah, basically, as, as a friend of mine would say, I'll take it one step further. Um, I think we're ahead of the game. Basically, um, Highland dress, traditional Highland dress, has not changed as drastically or as quickly as fashion on the streets, fashion, you know, in, in high fashion has changed over the years, especially for menswear. Um, so we are actually, you're actually easy, it's easier to do a vintage look with Highland dress in some ways than it is with Saxon wear. Um, there are certain points to pick up the second part of his question. There are ways you can emulate that more 1900 to 1920s look. That's what I would like to limit the time scope to because 1850s, you're talking Victorian stuff and there's a lot more, there's a lot more stuff that's different. Um, and it's technically, it's actually harder to do. Um, but for a 1920s look, a vintage look, you're already halfway there if you get a tweed jacket. They went in and out of being interested in some of the classic Highland wear accents, like the gauntlet cuffs and the excess buttons and the epaulettes. They were sometimes very popular, sometimes not. You can go either way. Uh, if you want a more elegant uh, 1920s look, I might tone those down a little bit because they have become more of like an emblematic uniform, like I'm wearing Highland dress kind of thing, as opposed to I am a vintage Highland person, if that makes sense. Um, the uh, the vests uh, tended in the 1920s not to have lapels on them uh, because they didn't want to accentuate the chest, at least in British fashion, uh, as much. And so, you, so a simple vest, simple tweed vest will work fine. Some of the things you can do to really make it look vintage is to invest in a different kind of shirt than a regular bog standard dress shirt. Um, one of the styles that they uh, you can still get uh, that they 
had back then was what's called a penny collar, uh, which is basically where it's a it's a dress shirt, but instead of the, the collar coming to points, it is rounded. So that's one way to give yourself a more vintage look. Another is to do a pointed collar, but use a tie bar to pinch it closed really tight under the tie. That was very popular in the 1920s. Uh, banker's shirts. Uh, in other words, a colored shirt, like a pinstripe colored shirt with a white collar, that can work for a vintage look. Um, Rocky, you're already ahead of the game with this stuff with your, your Tattersall shirts and things like that. Very, very classic vintage look. Um, they used a lot of color for things like ties and shirts. Suit jackets were tend to be a lot simpler. So you don't necessarily want a bright colored jacket. A lot of the tweeds that we're used to seeing are absolutely perfect. So you're good to go. Um, I'm trying to think of what else. There's the, the devil's in the details, especially for the 1920s, because it actually changed, the, the, the suit's fashions changed like two or three times in just that 10 year cycle, uh, as you move further away from World War I, essentially. Um, I highly recommend checking out a website called vintagedance.com. I think it's Vintage Dance or Vintage Dancing. Um, it's a primitive website, <laughs> design-wise, but the information is rock solid. And if you want to look into the details of menswear anywhere from the Victorian age up to, you know, say the 1950s or so, check that out. And they have tips on places you can go to shop for some of these things like the shirts I mentioned. So check out VintageDance.com. Great people. Um, but yeah, with kilts, you're already halfway there. It's not hard to do. The one thing I point out for a banker shirt, it, you said pinstripes. Not with a kilt, <laughs> but a a white. I'm not a fan of pinstripes. I've done it. Mixing I've done it. And, but no. The um, uh, but if it's a solid, you know, it, solid color shirt with a different color collar, fine. The um, yeah, but the key the key to to Highland dress in general is simpler is better. A simpler day sporing, a simpler you know jacket. The with, or you know, simpler you know accessories to it. It don't go crazy. The 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 crazier, the more the more layers you add, as it were, the further away almost you get. As as crazy as you know, they would have gotten would be like a Tattersall shirt and a, a window pane check, you know, tweed jacket. It's simpler is better when it comes to that kind of stuff. Um, yeah, it's it's a more classic look. Um, the only the the Here's minor tip, thought, whatever this is. Um, the thing that always kind of got me with old timey tweeds is they tended to do a lot more brown tweeds. You didn't need to match your kilt. You can go a little bit different. It can kind of stand on its own and it still looks fine. A lot of brown tweeds or you know, yellowish kind of brown, it's not necessarily in the kilt and a lot of, you know, some patterns, you know, that kind of thing, but it doesn't, you know, a lot of brown tweeds. I don't know, maybe there's more brown tweeds, but. Well, I think that comes from the, the deer stalking tradition. You were going with browns and tans and olive drab colors because you were matching the environment aesthetically and theoretically maybe blending in camouflage wise, but not really. They didn't go for city colors like blues and grays and stuff. They went for country colors the browns and greens that reflected the, the landscape that they were hunting in. So I think that's where that comes from for sure. Um, so yeah, again, that's that's another another way to do it is consider consider a, a tan or a, um, I think some, there's a couple of tan tweeds with the window painting on them which look fantastic and really, really scream Edwardian 
to me. Um, so it, it's yeah, that's that's a really good way to go. And one of the things you use a lot, um, club ties. Um, there, the in the twenties in that time period, there were a, there was a wide variety of neckties, but a really iconic and simple way to make it work with a kilt, which is still totally valid today, and you'll see Prince Charles wearing them, is the club tie or school tie with just the the angled stripes on it. It it really is it's timeless and it works perfectly with the the with the kilt. So invest in some of those. It's a little bit less matchy-matchy, a little bit more style and, and, and a different angle at it, but it's still good and it still is timeless. So that's kind of where we're going with it. Yeah, I think so. Indeed. Um, share the pictures. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. It's definitely a trend. I want to see it continue. So, And uh, I know as a company, we are trying to move in that direction as well. Yep. So watch this space because we got some good ideas coming out soon. All right, Mr. Mac, what do we got? Now Eric has me uh, wanting to go on Darcy's Clothing and uh, start right. buying a bunch more stuff off there. Right? Yeah. Yeah, man. And yeah, that there and and vintage vintage sites and thrift stores and antique shops, you can find those accessories in a number of different places. And don't forget your sweater vests. Very 1920s sweater. Sorry, Rocky, but very 1920s. I know. I know. I know. <laughs> You're not wrong. I just don't like them. There we go. The Farrell sweaters. Yes. As a matter of fact, yes. That was that was very <laughs> yeah. trendy back then for yeah. Saxon wear, but you could still wear it with a kilt if you want to. I, I am not that bold yet. But yes, Fair Isle sweaters for Fair Isle sweater vest. It is very, very, very Scottish. Um, what I want to see is like somebody would like, here's my outfit, Eric. This is this is all Scott. Kilt, Fair Isle sweater vest, uh -huh. Paisley jacket. Oof. <laughs> what? Paisley jacket? Paisley is Scottish? What you talk about, Rocky? <laughs> Paisley is a Scottish fabric. It's made I I know, I know, but a jacket? I, I'm okay, just going I'll, like I'll a do... like horrid outfit kind of thing. I'm just I'm being okay. flippant about it. You want to do the vintage worst kilt fit outfit. <laughs> yes. Like we did we did the modern worst possible yes. kilt outfit. You want to do a vintage worst possible kilt outfit. Gotcha. We might. Okay. Use Prince okay. Charles' head for that. Yes, absolutely. <laughs> oh, a bit. Um, paisley yes. ties. I would say a paisley tie would be a good a good thing to consider. I do a couple of those with with my kilts. No, it can work. It can work. Sure. <laughs> Don't listen to him, kids. Listen to listen to listen to Uncle. It's Eric. not my cuppa, Mr. Mac. <laughs> take us away. All right. So we have Ernie asking. How long does it take to make a custom tartan from plans to finish? We've also had a few other questions about like the process that a custom tartan, how it gets from your head to finished product. I didn't know if Rocky, if you could take us through those kind of steps. Sure. <clears throat> All right. Custom tartan. Let's start with this. Here's the ground rules. Going to make a custom tartan and you want to register the tartan all the way through you know, your finished garment. So, step one, start looking, start recognizing, start critically looking at other tartans and figure out what kind of patterns you like. Do you like busier? Do you like simpler? Do you like having a 
a border around the the, the you know a, a division like Klein like McDonald Klein Reynolds. There's a white stripe that kind of breaks up the sections. Do you want two main pivots where there's two stripes that are the pivot points, or do you want something like Royal Stewart where there's one pivot and then one big wide field of red? Start looking at tartans critically and figuring out which ones you like and try to assess why you like them. Next, find a tartan designer on a, on a website. It's free, they're all free. Save a bunch of different designs, live with it for a bit. And all of that takes as much time as you wanna take. So you can take two days or you can take weeks and obsess over it. Then you submit it to the tartan register and by submitting it, it's gonna be like 70 pounds, about 100 bucks or so if you register it yourself. They're gonna to wanna to know the name that you want to call the tartan, the thread count, the reason, what colors you use, all that kind of stuff. When you give them money and say, here's my tartan, here's the design I want, go, they're gonna take two weeks-ish. Um, they're gonna take that design, take the, the data you give them, the name, all that kind of stuff. They're gonna make sure that it's, uh, you have the right to design it, the right to register it. You're not calling it like, you know, the, the US Army tartan when you're, you have nothing to do with the US Army. Um, or the American Express tartan where you're not a representative of American Express. They're gonna make sure you're okay to do what you're doing. They're gonna approve the name and make sure that the name isn't like a copyrighted name or anything like that. Then they're gonna take the design itself and pass it off to tartan historians um, Peter McDonald, people like that, that are, all they do is, you know, they're in this, they know everything, they're part of the Tartan Register, they're part of the Scottish Tartan's Authority, they have a breadth of knowledge that is unparalleled in, in Tartan, and they can say, okay, this design looks similar to this one. They're going to make sure it's an original design. Once they come back and say, yep, your design, it's original, and the, the name, the rationale, all that stuff is good. You're not designing something that's either explicit or untoward, or you're not designing a Nazi tartan or something crazy. Um, they're gonna approve it. Now, from approval, you go to have it woven. When you submit the tartan to have it woven, you give it to a company, i.e. USA Kilts, or someone like that. We take that design, the thread count, we send it off to the mill. The mill will say, here's a CAD drawing of the design. Here's the thread colors we used to get as close as we could to what the person wanted. What do you think? We send it back to the customer. Customer says, hmm, all the colors look great within the stock shade. Or they say, well, they're all good, but the green, I want a little bit more mint than the standard bottle green or whatever. So then they have to go back for a custom dye. Custom dye of a color is key here because if you need, if your tartan is stock, stock shades, the mill, it's stock modern color palette, standard bottle green, standard navy, standard scarlet red, standard black, standard yellow, whatever. Then the mill likely has those colors in stock, ready to go, ready to weave. If they don't, then they have to go dye some samples of your mint green, spearmint specifically, my favorite mint. So they need spearmint green. Then they dye it, they send it to a dye house, have a few hanks of yarn dyed up, you know, 
little lighter, a little darker, a little darker, a little darker. Maybe you get three samples. They send that to us, we send it to the customer. All of this takes time. The customer has to approve the final thread color for the mint. Then you go back to the mill. Once that is approved, and that could take, keep in mind, custom dye at a dye house in Scotland, plus travel time to the mill, plus travel time to me, plus travel time to you. So if you're, you know, plan for a few weeks, if you need a custom color, because you want to make sure if it's a, uh, if it's a collegiate tartan and you need to match crimson red, um, roll tide. Um, so if you need to match a specific color for a specific college, university, team, whatever, then you need to make sure that it's dead on, it's going to take more time. Once the tartan is approved and the shades are approved by you, the customer, then you're looking at the time it takes for the mill to get the yarns in or if they're stock and then put it on the, the, the production schedule for them to weave it up. Once it's woven, then they has to go to the finisher, then it has to get finished, you know, treated, all that kind of stuff. Once it's done being finished, then it gets sent back to the mill. Then the mill actually puts it on a light board, make sure they're taking care of any flaws, any flubs in the fabric, any slubs or uh, on the on the on the the face of the fabric. They push them through to the backside if it needs any kind of any little treatments. Great, they make it perfect for you, perfect for the kilt. Then, if you're getting a kilt, then it goes into production for a kilt, and that takes several weeks for it to work its way through the production schedule. All being told, everything soup to nuts. Sorry, it's a long answer, but you asked a long question. <laughs> it could take as little as 12 weeks for a custom weave if you're if you're quick designing you're choosing stock colors the mill has a reasonably short queue and your kilt maker has a reasonably short queue once the fabric gets in 10 to 12 weeks on the very short end 16 to 20 weeks on the high end for how long it's going to take if it's going to take you two weeks to get the design down two to three weeks to get the actual colors dialed in you know, eight to 10, some mills actually are 12 to 14 weeks for weaving and then another two to three weeks for the, the production of the kilt. So if you're gonna do something custom, allow time. Don't rush it. You're gonna spend a lot of money. A custom kilt is gonna be anywhere from a grand to 1500 bucks, depending on all the bells and whistles, how much cloth you're getting, all that kind of stuff. So don't rush it. You don't wanna screw up with $1,000 to $1,500. You wanna make sure you're getting exactly what you want. So make sure you give yourself the time. If it's a wedding tartan, schedule backwards. If the wedding is June 30th, make sure you have everything started like the beginning of the year, just to give yourself enough time for hiccups. Mr. Eric, any thoughts to add to the process? No, I think, I think the... Uh being patient is the single most important factor. Yeah. Um, now that the stock shades, sometimes uh, you will be surprised that there is a stock shade which is very close to what you want. And I've seen you do this, Rocky, sometimes with consultations that there's, they'll give you like three or four different greens that are stock. And it may be that it's not hard to get a green 
Excuse me while I whip this out. You have a visual aid here. All right. <laughs> yeah, so don't don't assume you're going to have to go with a custom color. There's actually a fair amount of variety in the stock shades because they've done this a million times before. Um, but we have experience where people get very, very, very picky. I, how, how often do people want a custom dyed yarn in your experience with doing custom tartans? How often do people want it or how often do they get it? Because the main difference is price. When right. you're looking at a custom dyed yarn, let's say you're getting a short run, just enough for one kilt or, you know, or two kilts or something like that, like a wedding party or something like that. Um, a custom dyed yarn, every custom color will add about $100 to the cost of the kilt or a couple kilts. Therefore, a lot of people, when they, they come to us and say, okay, I want to do a custom run. Uh, you know, here's my tartan. I designed it from scratch. It looks great. I want this mint green. If you need a particular shade of green that isn't in the actual design or in the stock shades, then what's going to happen is your price is going to go up by about a hundred bucks. I am going to go back to you and say, Hey, I can do it. It's going to add X amount of dollars. When it does that, I'd say about half the people say, um, let me look at the stock shades again and see if something's <laughs> close enough. Um, right. <laughs> occasionally, if it must be a specific shade, then that's fine. They'll end up going back and saying, okay, nope, nope, nope. It has to be this go. And then we can get it custom dyed. But, you know, I'd say about half the time people end up trying to lean towards a custom or a, uh, a custom one. The other half the time they just kind of go back and say, eh, this one's close enough. Mr. Mack. Now, there are some questions about, is there a minimal amount of yardage that you have to order? Yes. <laughs> um, it, it there's, this gets into a, it, it starts getting into the, the minutia a little bit. Um, we can order just enough for one kill. Um, the, you know, we use House of Edgar for the majority of our custom weaves. And their minimum for us is 11 yards, 10 meters. They do a, uh, what's it, a, a, a 14 meter warp, um, which is the big honking warp drum, which is the long weft way, or the, the weft, or the warp, excuse me. The, well, obviously the warp. Um, warp is the big long length of the fabric. Um, they do 14 meters. When they actually weave that up, that shrinks down to about 11, yards or so of finished cloth. Um, so that is the minimum. Yes. For them, I have to order in, they have a seven meter warp drum. So I have to order in seven meter or five and a half meter increments. So 11, 16 and a half, 21 or 22 or something like, I don't know, whatever. Um, but there's set increments I have to order in. When I'm ordering a larger amount, from double width, now I can order from different mills. I can order from Mark Mills, I can order from Lock Caron, I can still order from House of Edgar. I can do different things and get different ranges and different mills will have different minimums for double width cloth. Um, the, the trickiest thing is the overage. If uh, I order you know, 11 meters from House of Edgar, they're gonna tell me plus or minus 10%. So, or you know, 10 or 15% depends on the mill. So if they, if they weave 
12 meters of cloth, then I have to buy and you have to buy that extra fabric. Or if they're a little bit short, it's not like they can just turn off the machine and say, okay, 11 meters, stop. Because it still has to go to the finisher. There's still gonna be some shrinkage during the finishing process. So it's not an exact science. I can't tell them I wanna order 123 and a half yards of cloth. It's gonna be 123 and a half plus or minus 10%. Um, and it even goes down to the smaller lengths as well. Does that answer the question for you, Mac? Yeah, it just we had a couple of people asking that, um, so I just wanted to make sure we got that in there. Yeah, it's it's a weird, you know, give take gray area organic thing. It's not as cut and dry as exact um, in certain ways as some people think it is. Um, these are humans doing a human thing and trying to get it as close as possible to the finished number, but there's always going to be a little bit, a tiny bit more, a tiny bit less than desired. So make sure you're getting enough for the project kind of thing. All right, Mr. Eric, next question, pretty please. Before I, before I get into that, I wanted to make, um, Mac had mentioned before that other people had questions about great kilts. I wanted to make sure we weren't leaving out somebody who had a burning great kill question that we needed to get to no we, we just hit them all right off the bat they kind of came okay. in back to back there so it's so a little, good to go. little more unusual than normal but so okay as long as we leave somebody out in the cold that's what i was nope. concerned about okay no questions um, about the new backdrop mac about all that scotch behind eric <laughs> it's all mine yes now we uh lock the door uh, we played around with the backdrop a little bit you crazy people out there, send us stuff that you want us to try, either because you love us or because you hate us. I'm not sure which. You want us to try all these different things so we don't get to the scotch fast enough or the different stuff that you want us to try, the whiskeys, whatever. So we started throwing stuff up in the background of the shoot just to show like all the different stuff that we have, either we have tried, we're gonna try, all that kind of stuff. So we're playing around with the set a little bit. So that's why Eric's halo looks different. He does not have bottles growing out of his head. I got yeah, it's like horns here. It's like like bottle horns right there. Bottle Indeed. antennas. Like a Martian. Um, and thank you. Yes. People. Absolutely. It's appreciated. It's 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 awesome. Um, I yes. I spoke to uh, uh uh what's it called Dan from the Welsh Turn Center and you know literally told him that our cust I made this man jealous and he went home crying that. Our customers send us scotch that we need to try for the show. And he's just like, no, you're, you get, he was like, yeah, you get to drink on the job. That must be fun. And I'm like, yeah, it's even better when people send the stuff to us for free. They, what? What? He was angry and, and just <laughs> wept. He wept like a child. It was beautiful. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. I love making men jealous. Yeah. Yeah. I, it, it yeah, it's uh, it, it it comes with it comes with uh, doing something just because it needs to be done, you know. Dan Dan can if the more he educates people about Welsh stuff, the more people want to give him gifts. Yeah. I would argue, no, and it also speaks to just our our passion and the passion of our audience, and just like wanting to push all this stuff forward. So we appreciate you guys, period. But. You know, especially when you guys send us stuff like that, it's just, it's awesome. It is never expected. 
I, I, when we started doing this kind of stuff, I was like, I don't know if anyone's gonna tune in to two bald dudes talking, yabbering on about tartans and kilts. And the fact that people like it and dig it and send us stuff to try is awesome. Absolutely, I never, I never yeah. imagined anything like this would be possible. It, so it's, it's humbling. It's very humbling. Very much so. So to that, this question actually does relate to the community. Um, Jay Shane Ward mentioned, uh, and this is you know part community, partly just trivial interest. Uh, with the Cthulhu Tartan, the Relia Tartan coming out, uh, he, had, he and a few others were starting to wonder, are there other Tartans out there that are based on literary or fictional characters? And so the backstory, of course, is what he's talking about with the, the Cthulhu Tartan. This is the Cthulhu Tartan. Scott Huber is the uh, guy who designed the Tartan back in 2011, I believe. We did a custom run of it, second run, in 2013. Um... It is a beautiful, beautiful design. It was H.P. Lovecraft was a science fiction writer back in the 20s, I believe, 28? 20s and 30s. Yeah. Um, and it was kind of like the grandfather of certain parts of this genre kind of thing. And there's, it, it holds a special, you know, part in people's hearts, um, you know, for, for being the old school, the originator, as it were. Um, so this is the Relia Tartan, um, which is the mythical city in the Pacific Ocean where Cthulhu lives and, and rises from to devour right. everyone. Everybody. So, yes, uh -huh. we're, doing, we're doing a custom run in this Tartan. Um, and that's up till April 20th, I think, is when I'm cutting off the, the, the custom run. So April 20th, 2021. If you get in, great. If you're watching this later, so sorry, so sad you missed it. Um, yep. But the question was, are there any other uh, science fiction, mythical, literary people um, or creatures or whatever that have their own tartans? Um, the only one in my mind that jumped out was like Scrooge McDuck. I know that Disney has a tartan register for Scrooge McDuck. It's not great. Um, it's very, very plain because it's in a cartoon. Um, that's the only one that jumped out to me. Eric, anything? Jump out I think, for you. I think Max said there, there are technically there's two Scrooge McDuck tartans, I think, was yeah, Max they was used, us at one point. But they used two but, different yeah. ones, I think, in the show. So they, they ended up registering both because it's Disney and right. they don't want anyone copying their stuff. So boom. Right. Ooh, Wait. That that reminds me. There's a Shrek tartan, and there's another one that Pixar or Disney did for Brave. Um, there was like a blue one yes, yes, for Brave. It's blue. Yeah, there is a Brave yep. tartan. And the one guy at the Academy Awards, he wore a kilt done in that tartan and everything. Yeah. Now that's not literary, but it's still... It's fiction, pop culture, you could say. Somebody I mean, wrote a book eventually. There was yeah, a I mean, literature literary. Literature is basically pop culture that's gotten old. <laughs> you know? Um, there was a script. At, at one... It's okay. There was a script. Right. It's literary. The movie yeah. had a script. Yeah, Jane, Jane Austen was basically, you know, what we consider a top... You know, New York Times top-selling author back in her day. Now it's literature um, because it was good and stood the test of time. But but I'm not so much familiar with literary character stuff. The only one that came to me when we were talking about this earlier was you could almost sort of argue that the Rob Roy Tartan is quasi-literary because there is a big difference between the historical Rob Roy McGregor 
and Rob Roy McGregor in the novel. You know what I mean? So it's which do you think of more when you look at that tartan is going to depend on your perspective, I guess. But it's much more likely nowadays that people come out with tartans for fictional stuff. And uh, I would mentioned when we talked about this earlier, um, at, at some point somebody tried to do some tartans based on the colors of various uh, famous comic book heroes. You know, like Superman and Wolverine and Spider-Man um, have tartans. I'm not sure if they've ever been officially registered, but that was the first thing that came to my mind as a pop culture thing. One more. Technically, this is literary. Outlander. Okay. Yeah. Outlander has four tartans, I believe. There's mm -hmm. Jamie Fraser, there's General Outlander, there's um, whatever Graham McTavish's character is, and then right. the uh, the lady in Outlander, I forget it, Claire. I think it's Claire. No. Oh. Yeah. Clarice, yeah. now mixing sounds and lambs. Whatever. Um, <laughs> I am so. Not Are the Tottens still names. screaming, Agent Starling? Exactly. Yeah. Uh, those are your Tottens, Clarice. <laughs> Do you hear <laughs> the sheep screaming, Clarice? Uh, lambs, yes. Silence of the lambs, Tartans, sheep, of the lambs, made sheep. from wool. Got it. Boom. <laughs> Kevin Bacon, seven degrees. Mm. Anyway. Okay, you broke me with that one. Oh my god. Uh, the, uh, oh, it's horrible. My that's wife horrible. knows the guy who actually invented the game Seven Degrees of Kevin Bacon. He was from... I think uh, it's six Degrees. Six, six Degrees, whatever it is. She knows the guy who started that. Um, he's from Kachakan. Or Manny Elk okay. or Kachakan, one of the two. Um, anyway, um, shout out to Mick. The... Uh, uh, yeah, it's... That's the only other one yep. I could think of would be another one. Um, people tried to turn the house colors from the Harry Potter books into tartans at one point. That was a strictly a commercial operation for selling, you know, like you know, mini skirts to hot topic Ravenclaw. kids. Ravenclaw. Yeah, exactly. Ravenclaw and Gryffindorf and Dorfendorf. Um, so they all each have a a sort of a tartan based on the house colors. Um, I want to look into this. I'm surprised I didn't think to think of this, look into this before we went live, but I'd be willing to bet somebody has created a Sherlock Holmes tartan. And I'll bet you dollars of donuts that, uh, you know, or hot cross buns to tea cakes that there's that there's a Sherlock Holmes uh, tartan out there. Somebody has probably done it because the Baker Street Irregulars, you know, the fans of, of Sherlock Holmes are pretty, pretty rabid, and especially in the UK. So I'd be willing to bet somebody's done that. Um, you know, it's, but I'm sure there's more out there than we can think of. It's just, you know, how do you research it in a way? How do you There find probably them? are. I can't think of any off the top of my head or too many off the top of my head, but yes, mm -hmm. there probably are. So mm -hmm. if you can think of any more, load them in the comments. There you go. Absolutely. Before the next question, I have seen the light, Eric. Oh, I'm going to go. Retape the thing on the window so okay. I don't get this weird thing of light right here. Excuse me for a second. Um, okay. And then this will Take probably time. be last question X or, or ask or one of one of you want a Mac. Um, I think the next one is going to be Max. So Mac and I'll just chat until you come back. Hey, well, Mac. Since uh, Rocky's out of the picture at the moment. Um, it's the there Mac and Eric show. Question for you, Eric. Yes. 
Um, apparently, there is a fan of the show who okay. finds you to be the the best of the three of us. That would uh, is celebrating a birthday today. So Stacy is celebrating, celebrating a, birthday a birthday and would like a shout out from Eric. Celebrating a birthday today? Stacy is celebrating a birthday today and would like a shout out from Eric. <clears throat> Do I know Stacy from elsewhere? Is Stacy married? Is, Stacey... <laughs> <laughs> is she cute? <laughs> What's Stacy's hey, last name, Mac? I don't I don't know. That's all right. I got this. I got this. Stacy. Hey. I want you to know that I am eternally grateful that you have passed another orbit around the sun because the sun is not the only light that makes this earth worth living on. You are as well. So keep shining and happy birthday. I'm out. <laughs> I don't know. I don't know if you can see the goosebumps. <laughs> goosebumps, baby. I know they're there. I know they're there, baby. <laughs> I am flattered. I, that is that was very awkward and weird, but I'm flattered. <laughs> Happy birthday, Stacy. New awkward heights. It's we set the right? awkward bar here. Right. Exceeded. Okay. All right, Mr. Mac, we'll do one more from you, and if it's quick enough, we'll do one more from Eric. Alrighty. So we have Steven asking, is spraying a kilt with alcohol slash white spirit safe long term? He's done this to get uh, some zesty smells out of a vest. Um, so he's looking to see if this is okay to use on his kilt. Um, some zesty smells. It conjures up some... Uh... Some things in my brain I don't know if I want to know about. You know, you know um, that's probably one of the nicer ways you could put it, though. I'll give him props for that. You know, that's you could. I got, I got stank like it wouldn't believe. You now, know, I, in I'd my say pits. Funk. You could have said that. I'd say funk, but funk. yeah, zesty smells, a, a little peppery. <laughs> <laughs> like the scotch um, we tried. No. The um, maybe, uh, I would say this: if anything. You're trying to test on your kilt, spraying on whatever. Any, uh, if you're applying something to the kilt, always test it on the under apron. Do not just spray it on whatever. Test it on the under apron, or maybe, yeah, start with the under apron. Um, if it's in the, the the upper back section where it's actually the liner of the kilt, that generally gets a lot of the, the sweat coming down your back. Maybe it's a little bit less likely, but I would say start trying it on the under apron. You want to make sure it doesn't discolor the cloth. That's the biggest thing. Now, I don't know about the witch's brew that you just, you know, gave us that you want to try on the kilt. What I would go with is something simple and kind of, you know, tried and true to a degree, like Febreze. If you're going to worry about getting an odor out of something or lifting an odor out, maybe try something like Febreze. It's not like you're investing hundreds of dollars in a bottle of Febreze, but you know it's not gonna screw up the cloth because if it did, there would be a lot more complaints about it. Eric, any right. thoughts? I, I'll go back to the fact that uh, if it's a wool kilt, tartan wool is treated for stain resistibility. 
wool is naturally more stain and odor resistant. So if you're laying the kill off gas, as we say, after wearing it, I'm hoping you're not gonna have to deal with something like this that often. If you are having to deal with this with a kilt, I'm wondering if maybe it isn't time to consider dry cleaning the kilt, rather than just, I hope it goes away. Maybe it, maybe the kilt needs washing. Um, but uh, if it's a speculative thing, like you know your other clothing gets stinky in the course of wearing, and you're worried the kilt is gonna do the same, it may not be that bad if it's a wool kilt. If it's a, if it's a poly kilt, or if it's some kind of a blend or something, then yeah, uh, go with the Febreze. But um, yeah, I mean, wool, I've never had to do an odor treatment on a wool kilt. No. personally so and i and you're 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 right on with either dry cleaning or the other thing i would say is wet washing it or just letting it soak in the tub and letting laying it flat to dry even just you know putting it through the motion of soaking it and kind of like dunking it in water to kind of release some of the oils and some of the uh, the stuff that's trapped in there and sweat and that kind of and the, the salt stains and that kind of stuff even that may help get the odor out Cleaning it is obviously the best way to do it, but even just soaking it will get a percentage of it out. So I'm, I'm all bored with you on that, Eric. Yeah. Cool. All right, Mr. Eric, I will give you the last question of the day. Cool. Okay. Nice. I want to do, I know this may take us over time, but I want to do it anyway, because um, I thought it was kind of an interesting question. Uh, James uh, Skiles, James Skiles said, uh, do similarities between clan tartans imply some sort of relationship between those clans? I.e., do clans that use the same field and stripe pattern but with different colors, for instance, Campbell and Robertson, uh, do they actually have or have the exact same field with different embellishments such as Douglas and Irvine? Do those mean that those tartans were born together because there was association between the two clans? As is the case with many things in life, in life, um, yes, no, maybe, and kind of and sort of. It depends on the clans. Uh, there are some that have little to nothing to do with each other, even though they're extremely similar, and some that are based on another tartan because they are, you know, a sept of the clan or they're or they're you know close cousins or something. Um, the one that comes to mind was Lament and Forbes. Lament or Lamont, if you're in the US, and Forbes are literally the exact same tartan. The difference is the Forbes tartan has two black threads on either side of the white stripe. So they're called guards, two black guards on either side of the white stripe. From 10 feet, they look the exact same. Nothing that I found in the tartan register had them being linked as a sept of the clan or related or you know anything like that. What I did find was Lament is related in some way to Campbell of Argyle, where Campbell of Argyle, it's effectively the same tartan, but it alternates white and then yellow and then white and then yellow stripes. Lament just has white stripe every single time. It's one of those where sometimes they are similar for a reason and other times they're just Similar because, I don't know, Forbes just said, you know what, I like that one. Let's just add a couple lines there. Good to go, done. So I'm not, I'm being flippant, obviously, but sometimes there is a reason, sometimes there's not. Eric, can you think of any uh, any other examples of it? I, I couldn't think of any examples off the top of my head. I just know that um, uh, 
people don't necessarily get creative in a vacuum. So, like you just said, essentially, um, I think there are plenty of cases where a clan chief or an officer of a clan who was told to do it or something uh, looked at some tartans that were available and said, "I like that one. Tweak that a little bit. Let's do this." You know, you know, the the lord, you know, the, the the clan chief's favorite color is green, so change that change that blue to a green, and then we'll go with it. Um, look at how many tartans are based on Black Watch. You know, like our old joke with our song, you know, everything is Black Watch. Everything, everything is Black Watch. Everything is cool when you're Scottish like me. It's true because, you know, you, you start with something that you, which is commonly known and famous and it's a springboard for your ideas. Um, that's more what I see happen than as opposed to like, well, let us honor our our sister clan by making our tartan exactly like theirs, but we shall add blue for the ocean that borders our lands. Yeah, that I don't see that happening so much. It, in clan, I will say this: uh, in clan tartans, it's hit or miss. Um, the other one that I, I just remembered now, um, Murray Vattel, um, is very similar to Robertson. I looked up Robertson and Mackenzie because Robertson and Mackenzie are the exact same but the white and the red stripes are reversed. So I thought, okay, maybe that was one. It's not, but Robertson is very similar to Murray of Athol. The white stripes are red, or red stripes are white, or white stripes are red, that kind of thing. Now, today, in, in registering a tartan today, in the past, let's say, 20, 30 years, as tartan registration has you know, become more of a thing, there is more of a, uh, uh, a penchant or whatever, um, a desire to take a tartan and tweak it and then honor, you know, at least mention the tartan in the design. The one that comes to my mind was uh, there's a, a, a pipe band in the US, Dundee Pipe Band, and their tartan was based on the Dundee District Tartan in Scotland. And they came to me and said, look, we don't want the Dundee tartan, but we want to do something based on that similar to that, and I designed a tartan for them with a, sl a, a twist on it. Or if you take, for instance, the U.S. Coast Guard tartan. Alexander Hamilton was the father of the U.S. Coast Guard, and the Coast Guard tartan is based on the Hamilton tartan with a wider white stripe. Or California. California tartan is the Muir tartan for Muir who you know uh, developed the parks, a bunch of parks and that kind of stuff. And the California tartan is based on Muir with an extra stripe added at the pivot, I believe. So there are a lot of different tartans, especially more recent ones, which kind of are a throwback to the original or give a heavy nod to the original and then just tweak it and make it different. But it's different from that, but it still honors that as part of what it is as a design. Yeah, they're, they're, uh, that, that makes a lot more sense because we are so much more into having a story behind the tartan now than they were 100, 200 years ago, 300 years ago. Um, it was just like, I want something different from my neighbors. I like that. But now it's it's much more, there's there's history now. There There's personal history and development of, of these groups and everything. So yeah, it makes a lot more sense that you'd, you'd want to honor your roots with it. So yeah. Absolutely. Makes sense. It's a, makes it's a, a way to look both backwards and forwards simultaneously, which really is the rock on which all of this is built, is being able to honor the heritage, honor the tradition, but at the same time, 
push it forward and say, I'm gonna make this my own. I'm gonna tweak it a little bit for me, but it's based solidly in the tradition, in the heritage, and that kind of thing. And this is now my gift to push it forward to my kids, to the next generation. Yeah, yeah. Absolutely. Makes sense. Question of the day. Flat caps with a kill. Contentious among traditional Highland wear. I love them. This is my style of cap. I started wearing flat caps in my mid to late teens after my grandfather passed and I started wearing his caps to honor his memory. I love flat caps. Some traditionalists will say no, kilts are not worn with flat caps. It's a different thing. Other guys just say, nope, it looks great. I'm doing it, boom, done. What do you think? Do you wear a flat cap with your kilt? Do you think it looks good with the kilt? Do you think it looks bunk? Let us know in the comments. Until next time, boys and girls, Slajava. Slajava. Thanks for joining us, guys. Our podcast theme song is Gold and Guns by the Kilmaine Saints. If you have a question for us, you can ask it during our YouTube live stream the first Friday of every month at 3 p.m. Eastern Time. If you want to get social with other kilt enthusiasts, go check out the Kilts and Culture group over on Facebook. You can also find USA Kilts on Facebook, Instagram, TikTok, or over at our website, usakilts.com. Thanks again for joining us, and until next time, Slanjava. Slanjava.